Hey everybody and welcome back to another episode of Becky Talks Parks, a podcast for passionate parks and recreation professionals who are dedicated to raising the bar in the field. Today I had the opportunity to talk to Carrie Connold about public engagement in relation to conservation and recreation. She talks about the shift principles and if you've never heard of them you need to stay tuned because she's going to really dive into how you can apply them to your organization if you're dealing with that issue of conserving land and then providing recreation opportunities to the public. And then we also get into how to engage with the public in new and unique ways and what engagement really means. On this right now she is a project consultant for Greenplay and she's also a community relations officer at the City of Boulder Open Space and Mountain Parks Department. She is really an amazing person overall. She's got a great perspective on life and also on open space and parks and recreation. I think that you're really going to enjoy this conversation. In this podcast episode, she's going to talk about how she got into her current role. And I think you'll find that's very interesting. It's not necessarily the traditional route. Um, But as we get further into the conversation, you'll start to understand how Carrie is raising the bar. And it's quite clear to me, she's changing the conversation to because she believes that conservation and recreation can work together it doesn't have to be this dynamic of um, opposing sides and she is redefining public engagement to mean it real conversations Um, I think that her perspective and the way that she approaches public engagement is a little bit different than some and I think that you'll have a lot to pick up from that and finally you're going to learn about how Creating this culture of collaboration and meeting people where they're at is really just the foundation of engaging with the public, of having conversations with the public, and ultimately having real conversations with others, even when they're hard, especially when they're hard, will pay off dividends in the end because that's how you get things done. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode. I know I did. I learned a ton. And please share it with your friends and coworkers if you found it useful. Thank you so much, and I will see you next week for another episode. Yeah, it's interesting with the um, parks and recreation industry and how I, I got to be involved in it because it really did find me. I got my degree from Kansas State University in anthropology and had also a strong business background. I was an accounting major for two and a half years and then switched over to anthropology. And so I was out living my life and had actually stayed at home with my kids for six years and was recently, um, I had recently moved to the Lafayette area outside of Boulder and was at City Hall turning in some paperwork. And I looked at their jobs postings and they had a position for the City of Lafayette Um, in their parks, open space, and golf department. And I read through everything, and I thought, gosh, I can do all those things. So I applied for the job and was fortunate enough to um, be selected and worked there in that department for seven years, which was a a really long time um, for me (laughs) because I had moved around a lot before that. And in working for a small local municipality as we have, we have about 25,000 people in Lafayette and I reside in Lafayette still um, even though I no longer work for the city but I 
loved that community. Um, working in a small community was great because when somebody would call in, chances were you knew them or you had some kind of connection with them. Um, or if you'd go out into the field, you'd see people you know because your kids went to school with them. And there were just a lot of ties. And so my time there working for Parks Open Space and Golf um, with the city was awesome. Loved it. And I got to wear a lot of different hats um, because we were small. And so I was our administrative assistant there and worked really closely with our director. Um, so got a really good, broad understanding of what public land management looked like um, on the less on the programmatic side and more on the maintenance side. And I really, that was mentally really stimulating. I loved it. It was great. Um, but eventually after seven years, I grew out of the position, was ready for um, a challenge, a different challenge, and was uh, hired at a small parks and rec district not too far away and was their recreation programs manager. So I went from the land management side of things over to programming for, for rec programs. And that was really different, but also really exciting. And I learned a lot about the recreational side of things. And I started to see you know, this interesting development between why parks and recreation go together because oftentimes it's funny in parks and rec what I have found is that personalities between recreation folks and parks and open space folks they're really different they're like night and day um, and so when you blend a department that has those personalities because at the end of the day it's all about relationships and and people um, so we, what I'm getting at is what I found is that these two facets of operations really need each other because in order to have, you know, good facilities, you need good maintenance people. And in order to have great athletic fields you, that you can use for programming, you have to have good relationships with the people who take care of those spaces. And that's your maintenance folks. Um, and I just found that really, like, my eyes were kind of open once I went into the rec programming side of things. Anyway, after that, um, I then, <laughs> it was funny, I was actually running in, on a trail outside of Boulder, gosh, four nights a week. I was driving about 40 minutes to go to this particular trail. Um, it was just such a good outlet for me mentally, physically, emotionally, it was so good. So I was going four nights a week and I thought one day, I was like, why don't I just check to see if they have any jobs available in Boulder? Cause I'm over here running all the time, I should see. Anyway, so I applied for a position as a business analyst for the city of Boulder Parks and Recreation Department and got that job. And that was, again, really interesting for me because it combined this business background that I had from college and you know experiential stuff from when I was in my early 20s and combine that then with my parks and rec experience from the city of Lafayette and with the parks and rec district and 
really helped that department with their budget um, direction and helping staff understand business principles. Um, so that was that was great, and it was it was interesting because as a budget analyst, I was missing the people side of things because I'm a pretty outgoing person and gregarious. I don't know a stranger, and I was. I had a, I just had a really good relationship with my computer <laughs> and not not necessarily with people. So I missed that. So uh, the city of Boulder's Open Space and Mountain Parks Department had a position available uh, for a community relations officer. And I applied for that position and was selected. And that, again, I, it was just so, it was an awesome opportunity to blend my life and my um, academic experiences and my previous job experiences to become part of a strategic team for the Open Space and Mountain Parks Department and to bring in these relationships from all these advocacy groups that exist in the Boulder area. Um, it's, it's pretty strong in terms of their advocacy groups who want access to public land and then Interestingly, we also have a lot of conservation advocacy groups. And so this, it, this opportunity I saw around the conversation that was being had in the community was always rec versus, so rec and access versus con conservation and preservation. And I thought, why do these things have to be in conflict with each other? It was puzzling to me and, and a bit of a frustration, honestly, because I, I typically don't, I just don't operate in that land of um, where you're butting heads with somebody. Like I always feel like you can try and figure things out and find a way to compromise or a way to find win-wins. And so I, I saw this challenge in our culture of Boulder um, to say, well, okay, we, yes, we know that, you know, from open space and mountain parks, we have an intention and a purpose for conservation and preserving our, our um, ecological resources. Yet we have this huge community who needs an outlet, like a physical outlet. And I, you know, Boulder has been named one of the happiest places in America. Um, and some of that is because of the ability and for people to go out and be in the outdoors. So if that's an important community asset, we can't just shut the doors on access. And not that we do. I mean, Boulder's great. We have tons of trails and um, a lot of a lot of access to our open space. But I, I was just like, how do we change this conversation? So that that's what leads into the shift principles. Because um, just by happenstance, I happened to go to this conference in October of 2016. And is the first introduction I had to the shift principles. And I thought, oh, this is the language we, we need. 
because it talks about how how do we make sure that public lands are relevant to all the communities that we serve. Um, and that means different cultural groups, um, different age groups. How do we make it relevant? And then also talking about the economic impact that outdoor recreation has to communities. That's a, that's a big story to tell. And if we can leverage both relevance and economic impacts and then um, things like the impact on public health that public lands have on communities, these are all great stories to tell. And then how do we leverage knowing that we need the space, so why conservation is important is because we, we need those spaces so that we have the ability to go recreate in those. And so we can use access as a way to promote stewardship and promote an ethos for conservation and protection while being able to access lands. And so when I heard the stories that people were saying at the SHIFT conference in 2016, it was great for me to hear that this story is relevant all across the United States. And so now as a consultant for Greenplay and, and being able to work in different areas across the United States. I'm really excited about being able to carry these messages about relevancy, economic impact, public health impact, and, and more with folks across the U.S. who maybe don't know the, the language to tell the story. So that's a great opportunity for me. So that's a little bit about how I landed where I was. It was really just circumstantial. I happened to be in places at good times and took initiative. Um, I, I, if I saw an opportunity, I would push myself forward towards that and um, moved with confidence and it got me to where I am today. I love your story. It's kind of funny. Like I knew parts of it because we worked together at City of Boulder, like kind of like we knew each other, but yeah, yeah not really. But it's, it's kind of, it's very interesting to hear your backstory and then some other things that you're passionate about and it's funny how things just kind of work together and you realize how your history has led you into this next perfect position for you yes exactly yeah and you know i've like i said earlier i've always been a people person and so to me i my lens is typically pretty people centric um and so I'm, but I'm aware of that. And the reason I say that is because when you work in land management, it, it, it's about managing the land. It's not, we don't think about human centric programs necessarily. Although in a, a lot of open space programs have programs that service people, but we have a lot of programs that service the environment and our ecologies. Um, but my thing is, is that humans are a part of the environment, and so we shouldn't be, we shouldn't back away from having a people-oriented view of why we provide good access to public land and provide good management of natural resources, because we are the ones as people who are doing that. <laughs> so. 
um, I, for me, it is an exciting threading of all these things that are important to me and that I'm passionate about. Um, it, it, I feel very fortunate. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the things that you're passionate about in relation to shift, because I can understand where you're coming from as far as like wanting to combine this conservation piece, like, yes, let's conserve the land and make sure it's here for generations to come. And at the same time, let's promote recreational activities and things that make people happy today. Um, so can you talk about how that relates to shift and give us some background as far as what shift is? I will do my best. So the shift principles began with a conversation, from what I understand, with a conversation um, from a group up in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, who saw some interesting things happening in the industry as well as politically. And what they saw politically was the, the selling off of public lands, particularly in the West. And we're talking mostly on a federal level. So where the Fed, the feds were saying, well, we can't manage all of this. And so we're either going to sell it to states who then states, because they are in a financial pinch, um, sold off lands to private entities. And so it was really the sell off of federal public lands that, instigated the thinking around the shift principles and also though at the same time seeing that a lot of conservation groups that have been around for a long time not all of them but, but quite a few their demographic for who their members were or who their their participants were was hitting a demographic that is pretty narrow so I'm not going to get into any specifics because I don't want to call anybody out on anything. But they, these, sorry, these groups weren't necessarily making themselves relevant to the makeup of America, which we know is, you know, has a lot of people in it. It's not just one small snippet of who we are. So, and then also to the traditional conservation versus recreation language. Um, you know, a lot of these groups have pitted themselves against each other and the thinkers of the shift principles saw an opportunity to change the conversation from us against them. And if we, to, to more of, if we want to protect our public lands, what, and again, whether that's at local, state, or federal level, if we want to protect and preserve our public lands, we need to do this together, not against each other. And so it really, the shift principles really are about creating a shared language. And those came out, I think they were first published in 2015. And you can go to shiftjh.org and find the principles there. And there's seven of them originally. And what was interesting is after the first conference festival in 2015, 
folks from the state of Colorado, from the outdoor recreation arm of the state, saw a huge opportunity and really bought in. And this is Luis Benitez. And I don't know if you know who he is, Becky, but um, Luis is awesome. He is an incredibly passionate person who understands the benefits of outdoor recreation to the state of Colorado and what a huge financial impact outdoor rec brings to the state. So anyway, he really um, brought those principles to the state of Colorado and they then in January of 2018 adopted the shift principles and started to implement those at the state. So with the Colorado uh, Parks and Wildlife Division. And that was really the first time any state adopted the shift principles. So Colorado was leading the way there and continues to do so. And they added an eighth principle, which says that it's not just public lands that play an important role, but it's also private lands that play an important role in you know, land conservation and in access. So when you think about sports, sportsmen opportunities, um, there's a lot of lands that are leased privately for hunting. Well, it still brings an economic impact and it's still people getting outdoors and it still brings all these great benefits. And so that was really um, a great opportunity to bring that, that into the conversation as well. So anyway, so now there's eight principles and it's, exciting to see these ideas slowly starting to move their way through people's thinking. Um, and so for me, I, as I work with agencies, it's where do we see the opportunities to actually implement these principles? Because right now they're conceptual. But how do we turn them into actions? And that's where the real opportunity lies with uh, us, you know, industry professionals who are out there implementing and putting action on the ground, how can we take these principles and, and make them real? So that leads me to, how, like, what is that first step for people? Let's say that they, because we'll put a link to the document that you sent me about Shift and the link to the website so they can read more about it. But is this something that an organization can read about, research, and then put in to, into action by themselves? Or does this require um, like a much larger process and like additional collaboration with other agencies? Um, so it's, it's a mix of both, really. Uh, so what, what an agency could do is if they're doing any kind of planning efforts and they um, are aware of the shift principles and they can see how these could work in their community. If they then say in their planning efforts said, okay, well, we're going to adopt these. Then as we would look at any kind of action planning that they're going to do and um, implementation schedules, we, you could work strategies into your planning efforts that help meet the, that follow the shift principles. So, for example, 
This one is proactive professional planning and management combined with public education is necessary to care for the land and provide a diversity of quality recreation opportunities. Okay, so that's high level conceptual. So what you would make sure is that in when you go to um, determining what activities might work best for a given location, you would really wanna make sure that you're working with your community to understand their needs and then structuring any programs or use, um, what do I wanna say, any uses that are in alignment with what those community needs are given the site-specific um, resources. So it's really just about good planning and making sure that you understand your site and that you're implementing opportunities for recreating that are considerate of your resources and then that also meet your community's needs. So if you have an, I mean, again, Boulder's a great example because it's so, um, so active, the people are active there that you might have an area that has high quality grasses or you might have a rare plant community. And so you're not gonna put a mountain bike trail that goes through your rare plant community. Now you still have community who wants biking trails and you have conservationists who want to protect that rare plant community. So you, you have to work together with both groups to say we understand the concerns of both and so we're going to design the site specific we're going to design a bike trail that doesn't go through the rare plant community but still gives a good visitor experience for mountain biking and you'd want to determine what level of mountain biking experience you want to provide is it an entry level, is it moderate, is it um, difficult? So assessing what else you have around in your community is also important and then working with your, um, the people who are in, you know, who are mountain bikers, you would wanna work closely with those folks so that you're meeting their needs as well. And I mean, so it, I think where where sometimes we as industry professionals get tripped up is we go, oh my God, that sounds like a lot of work, <laughs> working directly with people. Yet what I have found in my experience is that when we actually have real conversations with people, so this is all about relationship development with the people who we serve having the hard conversations or really what turn out not to be so hard, but just understanding where they're coming from, it pays dividends in the end to have good working relationships with, with people. Because then when you come to hard conversations, they can be easier because you already have a relationship established. And so I encourage professionals to not be daunted by public engagement, but rather to embrace it and leverage it 
so that we can provide a better product so that our communities whom we serve can go out and have the experiences that they value. Um, that's, that's one piece of advice I would share with people. Don't be daunted by public engagement. Yes, exactly. And that's the next converse or the next question I have for you, because I know that you're also skilled and knowledgeable in public engagement. And I think that that means a lot of different things to many different people. Like, what does it truly mm -hmm. mean to engage with the public? And it's different in a community like Boulder, who is very active and very involved, and they have tons of groups who are solely passionate about conserving land. And then you go to a small town anywhere else in America, and they may not have those same resources or people who necessarily care about that or have like band together to create these formal organizations. So like, can you talk about what public engagement means to you and some different strategies that might apply whether or not you're in this, um, you know, kind of a more progressive community like Boulder and then versus maybe a smaller town? Yeah, sure. So public engagement to me is simply fluffy words for having conversations with people who live in a place. <laughs> so it, it sounds, I don't know why just those words, public engagement can sound really lofty and um, time consuming. <laughs> and it does, like I said, it doesn't have to be because public engagement in a small community where sure, maybe you don't have, but a group that is banded together for a specific saying. Although I think people might be surprised if you think just slightly different because you might actually have a group of people who informally get together and go for a walk around a park on a particular day. That, that group has a stake in that space. And it may not be so specific that they are driven because of a concern for a given amenity that a, a Parks and Recreation Department provides, but they still value it. And I guess that's what I'm, I guess that's what I would call public in, engagement is when you have a person or persons who have a stake in an amenity. So by having a stake, it simply means that they value whatever that is, whether it be a facility, um, whether it be a program, whether it be a space. And that could be a park, it could be a green belt, it could be a trail, it can simply be a parcel of land that has been conserved for its natural resource values. Whatever that is, if somebody values it, they are a stakeholder. And we can value things from afar or directly. So what I mean by afar, it could be that you have people who value a, a grassland area simply because it's open. And those people, they, they may never step foot in it, but they value the aesthetic of it. Um, 
So it's, a, it's just a different way of thinking about who your stakeholders are and, and recognizing that people, even if they aren't a part of the Autobahn Society or they aren't members of a mountain bike alliance or they aren't in a running club or whatever, they, they still most likely have some kind of value in whatever it is that we as the government agency are um, taking care of. And we're doing it on their behalf. And so I think that, that you know, when we remember that, it can help us determine who our stakeholders are and why we need to engage them because we, again, we are the stewards of that space, but we're doing it on their behalf. And so we have to remember that it's, it's for our communities, not just for ourselves. Um, and when we do that and we think about having to translate those um, values that people have for the things that we are responsible for in our work, um, we, we want to make sure that we are in alignment with what our community's needs are. And that, that can get tricky because now you you know there's always budget implications and, and how do we prioritize and but if we don't have a pulse on what those things are because we haven't engaged our public, that's when we're going to hear about it at the eleventh hour and people are going to say, well, why are you spending X dollars on such and such a thing? That doesn't make any sense. So we really want to make sure that we are engaging our communities so that we can say these are the things that they value. And then we garner their support to make financial um, decisions around where we, we put our work. Okay, so what I'm hearing you say is that a lot of times public engagement sounds like a big scary word, but in reality it's just a conversation and that a lot of those people can, they may not have or be very vocal or in a formal organization, but they still value it and appreciate it in some way. And that means that we should value their opinion and then, mm -hmm. and then find a way to engage them up front so that further down the road, you got their, you have their feedback and now you can say, this is what we're trying to do. And now we need your support for the budget to make it happen. Mm -hmm. That's right. That was a good summary. You said that in a lot fewer words than I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to have some background and some, like I hadn't really heard your perspective on public engagement. And I think it, it varies depending on, you know, your background and also the people you work with and that kind of thing. But do you feel like mm -hmm. um, when it comes to public engagement, are there certain strategies that you like to have? like? Is it a more formal setting and you sit down in a room and you talk about questions or are there some different ways that you have found work best for um, really having those conversations that you're talking about? So great question. And uh, the thing that I have learned about public engagement um, through some trainings that I've done and, and just my general experience is um, that the most important saying as professionals that we should remember when we are planning for public engagement is to determine first 
before picking strategies or techniques to implement. Before we do that, we need to think about what we are trying to achieve through engaging the public. So if you know what your objective is first, then you can determine what strategies or what techniques to implement. So that's the first step, and that is the most important step. Behind that is that you want to make sure that whoever your decision maker is, that they also agree that that is the objective so that then when you go to do the actual engagement, regardless of whether you do it in an informal setting, a formal setting, online or in person, like none of that actually really doesn't matter. You want to make sure that your decision makers and the person whoever is doing the public engagement are on the same page. Because nothing's worse than if you go and do public engagement and then you come back and you have the wrong informa information or you didn't quite meet what your decision makers were expecting. I think one of the most important things is just people think about public engagement is to plan first. Uh, like I said, make sure that everyone has the same expectation up front and early around what, what you're trying to get out of public engagement. And that includes staff who are going to be implementing the public engagement and making sure that your decision makers are on board with what your objective is. And then in terms of implementing the public engagement strategies, once you've figured out what you're trying to do, one thing that we have found to be really productive in this day and age is to meet people where they're at. And that's a term, you know, that phrase has been thrown out a lot. I've heard it a lot um, throughout my trainings and in my work experience. It's really valuable. So, for example, um, one strategy might be to um, if you know that your stakeholder group um, typically gets together to do a lunch at a certain place on Wednesdays, and I'm using this actually as an example because this happened to us with our ag tenants, our agricultural tenants. Um, we, we knew that they got together on Wednesdays in the afternoon for coffee at a particular restaurant and we needed to engage them for an agricultural management plan. And so we, we wanted to simply inform them of some upcoming things that were going to happen. And so we sent them all handwritten invitations to, the, to meet us at the restaurant on such and such a day for two hours. And we were going to provide them with coffee and cheesecake. And we had such a great turnout. And that was specifically who we needed to do outreach to. And we went to where they were going to be anyway and had an awesome opportunity to share with them what we needed to. So we met our objective. We did it on their turf, on their time, when they were already going to be somewhere. And so that worked out really well. But the only, and that, that was a great way to establish trust and to um, 
really start developing good relationships for the harder work that we needed to do later around lease rates because we knew those were going to be tough conversations. But that, it gets back to what I was saying earlier around how important it is really to just have good relationships with your stakeholders. So the people who live in your community. And it doesn't mean everybody because that's not realistic. I, I recognize that. But um, you to have some starting places and to have some maybe key brokers in your community, and that can be in different communities. Um, you know, it could be in your Latinx communities. It could be in um, your Hmong community. It could be with um, religious communities. It, just having some key brokers in your community can get you started, and then you can leverage those folks as well if you get them in the know about a project. Um, I've seen that work well also. Um, and again, we, we all have relationships with people out there. If you're a rec programs person, you, you know who your coaches are. You know who your umpires are or your refs, because those are typically people that, you know, and pillars in your community or even some youth that you could leverage for their input and, and their perspectives into projects. So we all have these opportunities, and it's just a, about connecting with them at the right time. And so part of that planning effort, along with making sure that everyone has the same expectations around what your objective is and your decision makers are bought in and staff understands what you're trying to do, um, getting those, those people with whom you have good relationships, if you recognize that those are stakeholders that you need to have involved in a project, get those people in the know. Um, and you can do that through a, a variety of techniques because, you know, that's where you start leveraging your online stuff or your social media, um, pick up the phone and call somebody, you can send out mailers. So I always, I always pause when people want to jump to strategies and techniques when we haven't yet talked about what your objective is. And so that's, that is a big piece that I learned through uh, training through the International Association of Public Participation, which is also known as IAP2. That was one of the big takeaways that I had, and I've seen that now be put into action in planning processes um, with the City of Boulder, Open Space and Mountain Parks, where it really has benefited us. And we've, um, we've been able to leverage resources, and we've been able to be more efficient in our process because we knew first what we were trying to do instead of just having an open house and maybe only reaching a handful of people instead of really understanding who our stakeholders are, what we're trying to achieve and figuring out a strategy that is more efficient. Uh, so those, when I think about, I get, I really enjoy public engagement. I, I think that, um, you know, in our jobs, we probably don't know when we go into parks and recreation, we don't know that that's a component of our work that's going to be coming our way. And I, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what level of an organization you're at. At some point, you're going to be exposed to public engagement. So it doesn't matter if you're a planner or if you're a, um, or if you're 
a supervisor or you're a lifeguard, you're going to hear about it in your organization, most likely, that these things are going on. And so I, I get excited to, to know that we have, this, we have great people in our industry who we could really maximize the relationships that they have with the people that they serve when we are doing public engagement. And I think that, that there's huge opportunity for us as professionals to start talking about that more. Absolutely. And I, like, I love the example that you gave as far as like meeting that group of people and, and, you know, giving cheesecake out and things that make people excited, like they would show up for that regardless. But because you said, we want to be a part of what you're already doing and then just talk about this other thing too, people are going to be more involved and invested mm -hmm. and, um, you know, just having like, we all, that's a nice catchy phrase, like meet people where they are. But if you can truly do that, then I agree that that will lead to more success. Well, yeah, you know, and I, you know, when you're in a smaller community and you, you don't, maybe you have different resource structure and, you know, we're everybody's, everybody's busy. Like I, I recognize that. And so when, People who aren't as passionate about public engagement know that it's coming their way. It can seem like, you know, trudgery, like, oh, gosh, I have to do this thing. But it doesn't have to be that way. Like, it really doesn't because you can take the skills and the relationships that you have and, and get the information that you need, which is why finding out your objective is so important. Because once you know what you're trying to do, then you can think about the things that you already do. And how do you maximize those opportunities? Yes. Okay, cool. So that leads me to one of my last and always favorite question. And that is, what does it mean when you think about raising the bar in parks and recreation? What does that mean to you? Bringing our professional skill along with our call to serve our communities and having a positive attitude in doing that. It's exciting what we do. And to be in service to others, it's a lot of times it's why we get into the work that we get into it's in the public sector. Um, we, we want to serve others. And so when you can see how you do that, like where you fit in in your role, where you do serve the public, and seeing where you can bring your skill set and really bring in it every day, like I, that's exciting to me. And as industry professionals, we have this great opportunity to impact others' lives for the better every day. It's pretty exciting. It is exciting. And I think when you can utilize your strengths, like you're talking about, like the things, the skills and the knowledge that you specifically have and that everybody in this field specifically has, and then be able to utilize that for good and in service to others. I, I mean, that's, that's the best. That's the ultimate. It is. It but, is. And again, you know, like you're right, Becky, everybody brings something different and that's what makes it so cool is that we don't we aren't all the same um and you get hired into your role for a reason and i encourage people to bring it like that's be 
recognize that you were hired because of who you are and let 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 that be what drives you and and motivates you through your days and some days are hard like i know they're long they're hard they they don't seem that motivating but when you remember again who you're in service to and and the kind of work that we do it's we're we're pretty fortunate in this field and let me and i want to ask a follow up question because i asked this last week and it got me thinking um that we need to start talking about the reasons why we're not able to do that or like Mm -hmm. What do you think are some obstacles that are preventing organizations and individuals from raising the bar, from using their their best self in their work? This is so easy to me. Um, it's bad relationships. That's it. You know, like, and it's just that. That's oftentimes the biggest struggle. It's you know, they're interpersonal things. Um, maybe we butt heads with a coworker, or maybe we don't care for the direction a city manager is taking us in. You know, like there are relational issues. Um, we, we can talk about funding challenges and then all that all day long, but the reality is even with all the money in the world that we could have access to, to implement what we're supposed to be implementing in our role, it, doesn't matter if you still have a bad relationship with a coworker or with somebody you supervise or somebody who supervises you, that's going to get it in the way. And so when you have those um, barriers, I, I think that that makes it really challenging for us to show up well every day. And so my encouragement to that is to allow yourself the space to have the hard conversations. Like we're we're human. We we gotta say what we expect and we gotta tell people what we need. And if we don't do that, how is anybody ever gonna know? So as tricky as that can be to have the hard conversations, I encourage people to have them because once you've had them, it can be freeing. And then you can show up really well to get your work done. Not easy, Becky. I understand what I'm saying, but I think that we can do it. I absolutely agree with Carrie, and I hope you do too. After we had this conversation, me and Carrie made a pact that we got to do another episode all about having hard conversations in the workplace because that is not an easy thing to do. And being able to open yourself up and tell somebody what you want and what you need and what you expect is so important and it really is the foundation to figuring out those more complicated things like funding and budgeting and um, you know other decisions so certainly part of the equation so anyways i hope you guys enjoy this episode please share it with your friends and your coworkers, and i will catch you next week thanks again